Welcome to the Dr. Christian Heim podcast, where we're living for preventative mental health, love, and compassion. Great to have your company again. I'm Caroline Heim, and here is Dr. Christian Heim. Hello. And today we're going to continue our series reading Dr. Heim's book, Negotiating Diversity with Insights from Science and Clinical Psychiatry. In today's episode, we start getting really practical about how to apply the science of diversity into your life. We start, though, with some very important stories. Everyone loves a heartwarming story. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe, spread the word, and recommend them to others. As usual, I will occasionally interrupt and ask Dr. Heim some questions. Chapter 4. What can I do? Five steps to apply the science. We are made for goodness. We are made for love. We are made for friendliness. We are made for togetherness. We are made for all of the beautiful things you and I know. We are made to tell the world that there are no outsiders. All are welcome. Black, white, red, yellow, rich, poor, educated, not educated, male, female, gay, straight, all, all, all. We all belong to this family, this human family. Desmond Tutu. We've looked at the research into cultural differences. We've looked at the science of getting along. It's time to solve the problem of other people, but there's a snag. Most of us barely understand and accept cultural difference, let alone the deep, broad diversity of today. From cultural difference to the diversity of today. Hall, Hofstede and Trompenaz articulated the following cultural differences. And you might want to just think about each of these for yourself as we go through them. Differences in attitudes to personal space, being relatively task-orientated or people-orientated, knowing the right things to do to be socially accepted, respect for authority, tolerance of ambiguity, being individual rather than collective, masculine versus feminine, old-fashioned versus new-fashioned, desire gratification, rules versus relationships, the individual versus the group, expressing feelings, involvement, according status, managing time, relating to nature. But there are many more cultural differences, including how fast one eats, how fast one walks, how often you say, I love you, how much you disclose in private conversation, how much you voice your complaints or keep them to yourself, how much you share about your achievements, how much you take others for granted, and much, much more. Any couple I have worked with in therapy have had their fair share of culture-based tensions. Culture tension in two people who are close? <laughs> well, what about the vast diversity of today? Today's diversity differences go to the core of our values, beliefs, and identities. Sex, politics, religion, and a broader acceptance of what is normal and acceptable. The broadening definitions of normal and acceptable push the unacceptable down to legal basics. Violence, corruption, misappropriation, and cheating. Nowhere are these considered acceptable. When it comes to the question, what is normal? The answer is a lot more than was considered normal decades ago. Things once considered problems, or in medical terms, pathologies, are now by and largely considered to be normal, or at least a variation of normal. Current public and political discourse is working on the finer points of these things. Is being hearing impaired a problem or a variation of normal? Is being divorced a problem or a variation of normal? Is having bipolar a problem or a variant of normal? Normalising takes away stigma. This is an evolving watch this space area. As things once considered abnormal or unacceptable become normal and socially acceptable, many people will feel their values being challenged. 
Many years ago, a couple kissing in public, for example, was once considered to be socially unacceptable. Now, public displays of affection like kissing are normal, acceptable and encouraged. Still, some people will find this a challenge to their core values. Solving the problem of other people. If we wish to quell the present conflicts, culture wars, bigotry, hatred, racism and envy, I believe we have two options. The first, as absurd as it sounds, is to ensure that all like-identifying people stay together and that there is sufficient distance between people of difference. The second, as obvious as it sounds, is accepting each other as fellow human beings and working to handle and accept each other's diversity. Let's consider these. Several people voice their opinion that the problem is mass migration and intermingling. This was never meant to happen. The Chinese should stay in China, the Germans in Germany, the English in England, the Africans in Africa, and so forth. This is a strange proposition. Perhaps Homo sapiens should never have migrated out of Africa. But we did. There has been so much intermingling that most of us, somewhere in our ancestry, find that we belong in several countries and cultures. DNA testing shows this. Our own intrapersonal differences can be celebrated, as can differences in sex and gender expression, religion, age, political, and mental health and ability considerations. Option two, no lines drawn, accepting each other as fellow human beings and handling each other's diversity. As a psychiatrist, I suggest individual-based rather than population-based methods of doing this. You, as an individual, can learn how to handle diversity. Cultural neuroscience and the science of the mere exposure effect suggest this natural outgrowth of the human condition. We can happily embrace and even celebrate diversity. It's a choice. This chapter will present five steps to help you, as an individual, negotiate the diversity of the people around you. The five steps are 1. Accept and applaud differences. 2. Build bridges, not walls. 3. Connect with common ground. 4. Dare to be different. 5. Enter the expectation-free zone. Don't be deceived by the simplicity of these five steps. Much research and clinical experience lie behind this easy-to-remember system. They are based on the science presented last chapter and on activating pathways of altruism, trust, empathy, compassion and your social brain. Each relies on you making a pro-social choice in your orbitofrontal cortex. As explored last chapter, science is showing the importance of the choices we make in our lives. We each carry the potential to be pro-social or antisocial, peaceful or violent, altruistic or selfish, accepting or hostile. Your choice. From science to the five steps. Last chapter articulated the evidence. After reading it, you have the knowledge but not the skills needed. To develop the skills, knowledge has to be put into practice and it has to be practiced so that you can become good at it. Reading a cookbook doesn't make you a good cook. Knowing the rules of basketball doesn't make you a great player. Understanding all the ins and outs of how a piano works doesn't mean you can play Beethoven or the Beatles. All these things take practice. Much of life is practice and this needs to be appreciated. These five steps are the aide de mémoire for you to apply the science and practice it in your everyday life. That's what this chapter is all about. All five steps make use of your orbitofrontal choice, your limbic system empathy, altruism and trust, the principles of cultural neuroscience, your social brain and the eye contact effect, 
and help lay down new belief maps for your brain. Accept and applaud is the ultimate application of the mere exposure effect. Build bridges and connecting with common ground especially makes use of your social brain. Dare to be different and enter an expectation-free zone, specifically apply the principles of cultural science and rely heavily on building trust. The science presented last chapter presents nuances of how the brain works as it relates to socialization and accepting diversity. Knowing this is one thing, but applying it in your life through a method is another. We'll now explore the method. Take-home message. Scientific knowledge is interesting, but science applied is useful. Handling others' diversity. To apply the five steps is quite a journey. It's a journey beyond awareness of the principles outlined in chapters two and three. Before getting into the five steps, however, I'm going to share with you some hopeful stories and discuss some principles of people interactions. I don't describe diverse groups or give you tips on how to handle them that would fall into a trap, stereotyping and limiting, seeing other people as others rather than as people. This undermines your brain's keen empathy, compassion, people interaction skills and eye contact effect to be able to negotiate the rich complexity of another individual. You cannot be forced to be pro-social. It's a free choice. The skills need practice. Public discourse boils diversity complexity down to, are you for us or against us? This is a major obstacle. Acceptance takes goodwill and understanding. Take her message. It takes goodwill and understanding to reach acceptance and peace. Handling others' diversity. From what you know about cultural difference, diversity, and the engagement of the social brain, you can appreciate that you, as a person, can engage with any other person and their social brain as long as they are willing to allow it. It's easier on an individual level. It's up to you and the other person. You can easily apply the science in your personal interactions. Individual engagement in an emotionally charged situation of cultural diversity is illustrated in the following. Post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, can be caused by war trauma. Sufferers can be angry, resentful, suicidal and subject to alcohol dependence and other addictions, as well as find themselves leaving behind a string of broken relationships. That was Gary. Many years ago, after his second wife left him to forge a better life, she could take his anger and drinking no more, he became depressed and suicidal, so I admitted him into hospital. Given his history of violence, he was admitted into a medium-secure unit. Gary had served in Vietnam as a private in the army. He saw many friends die at the hands of Viet Cong. I wish we'd killed all the sons of bitches. His anger was intense. After the war, he developed an intense hatred towards Asian people, just as others developed intense hatred towards Germans after World War II and against royalists in the American War of Independence. In hospital... Gary's main nurse was Yan Pen, who was born in Thailand. I hate her. She's a dot dot dot. And I won't stand for it. Get me a proper nurse, an Australian, who can speak English without an accent. All people speak with an accent. When I informed Gary that Yan Pen would continue as his nurse and he was expected to apologise, we were in for a torrid time. During Gary's stay, Yan Pen shed many tears. Gary was read the riot act and was all but evicted from hospital before a remarkable thing happened. Gary injured his hand badly and Yan Pen had to bathe and bandage his wounds. He noticed her good professional care. Why are you being so nice to me? I treat you like crap. I'm a bastard, a piece of shit. 
I don't understand you. You're supposed to hate me. His attitude softened in the presence of her professional attitude. They talked and continued talking long after the wounds had been bandaged. Gary learnt about the pain the Vietnam War had caused Yan Pen and her family. They talked more. He began to understand that war causes everybody pain, not just him and his mates. In short, they came to understand each other and they became friendly. Now, if he needs to come into our day clinic, Gary drops in on Yan Pen and they share a cup of tea if she has a break. Years later, she invited him to her Australian citizenship celebration and he accepted. They became friends. Gary now has far fewer anger outbursts and drinks far less alcohol. Violence for him is a thing of the past. Many cups of Yan Pen's tea, some forgiveness, better feelings underneath and coming to understand each other through deep engagement of his social brain helped him tremendously. I have witnessed this transformation in the lives of many people. Gary and Yan Pen, like all of us, need to be understood and accepted. And more stories like this need to be told. Uh, yes, but it's hard to tell stories like this. Yeah. And stories like this are happening less and less because we don't get past the initial hostility and we break people apart. Yeah. We say, stop this, stop this. Yeah. But people, when they engage their social brains, will actually figure it out, given time. But we have to take the risk. Yeah. Let's explore the story in light of the mere exposure effects pattern of exposure, initial hostility, growing curiosity and final acceptance. To say that the story began with exposure and initial hostility is an understatement. Gary extended the hostilities of the Vietnam War to all the people of Asia, including Yan Pen. Thanks to the great perseverance on the part of Yan Pen, the nursing unit coordinator and hospital management and many meetings, the setting of boundaries and the good clinical care which is possible in a medium secure unit, a bad outcome was averted and a good outcome was forged. The fortune of Gary's hand injury, sustained during hostilities with others, gave an opportunity for social brain engagement between Gary and Yan Pen. Yan Pen was being professional and caring. Gary grew curious. Why was she being caring? Sure, it's her job, but I don't deserve good care. Gary's curiosity led to simple conversations and important revelations, understanding and acceptance. Yan Pen's continued outpatient care led to more chats, more understanding and more acceptance. After many months, Gary wished Yan Pen well on her upcoming citizenship ceremony. She invited Gary along and he accepted with, I'd be honoured. Was it unprofessional for Yan Pen to invite Gary? Strictly speaking, yes, but it was preeminently human. The mere exposure effect pathway came into effect. Exposure to initial hostility, to curiosity, to understanding and acceptance. One point needs to be made though. We needed to ride out the time of initial hostility. If we threw Gary out of hospital or separated him from Yan Pen, the miracle of curiosity, understanding and acceptance would not have happened. And yet this positive outcome could not be guaranteed. Ah, so is that where tolerance comes in, doesn't it? That's the difficulty. Initial hostility is hard for all of us to tolerate and we want it gone really quickly. If we have a little bit of patience and understanding, we will naturally move to curiosity. Another ex-soldier, Jim, who also served in Vietnam, took part in an exchange program. It too applied the science of the mere exposure effect and the rules of social brain engagement. 
Australian Vietnam veterans got together with Viet Cong veterans yearly, sometimes in Australia, sometimes in Vietnam. Australians introduced their guests to a typical Australian barbecue, meat, prawns, skewered vegetables and plenty of beer. In Vietnam, the Aussie vets got introduced to typical Vietnamese food. Bloody hell, says Jim. I never thought I'd see myself eating Vietnamese food again, let alone enjoying it. There was always joking, photo showing, reminiscing, understanding and even some tears. Years ago, these same men were trying to kill each other. They each lost friends to the war. Then there was fighting. Now there is sharing. I wish these events received the media coverage they deserve. They are a social balm to the social problem. They would restore trust and faith in the human condition. Again, Jim's experience followed the mere exposure effect pathway. War hostility to food and custom curiosity to understanding and acceptance. In today's society, we witness hostility. The aim is to move beyond this through curiosity towards acceptance. This, on a societal level, takes time and effort. On an individual level, there is more chance of success. Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet hold some lessons on the mere exposure effect. The Capulets and Montagues were at war, but Romeo Montague and Juliet Capulet, curious about each other, to say the least, fall in love and marry and die. But at the end of the play, there is more understanding and acceptance between the previously warring families. In this, there is hope. The same storyline is seen in West Side Story. Our aim is to move past the hostilities without the tragic events of Romeo and Juliet or Tony and Maria. It may sound counterintuitive, but hostile feelings towards anyone is reduced with more contact. Meeting them, working with them, getting to know them, befriending them and living with them. And them soon becomes us. It's not always the case and discretionary caution must be applied. But the more you get to know someone, the less foreign or different they may seem. And the friendlier the interaction can become. This is the usual process of meeting people and befriending them. We take it for granted with the people we feel comfortable with, but it can be the same with people with whom we feel initial discomfort or even sometimes hostility. This happens primarily through the mere exposure effect and engagement of the social brain through eye contact, altruism and trust. People interactions, war or non-competitive sport. Interaction with other people happens on two levels. One, mask and word level. Two, feelings underneath and social brain engagement. Mask and word level is keeping it light and polite on the surface. Feelings underneath involves being more vulnerable, disclosing more thoughts and feelings. It involves brain engagement. You can keep things light and polite on the surface while still saying things which positively affect the feelings underneath. The following are suggestions. I think we understand each other well. I don't mind. I'm getting to know you. Maybe we're going to trust each other. I understand. We're just both trying to get through life. Yeah, me too. When the feelings underneath are fine, when your social brains are engaged, it feels like you're creating something worthwhile together, like being involved in a non-competitive sport or building something together. Some people, however, approach socialising like war. Win, lose, conquer, attack, defend, stonewall or withdraw. I encourage you to approach it as a mutual artwork or a non-competitive sport. Build, connect, encourage, dare to disclose and applaud the results. You may find yourself inclined towards one or the other, but in this book, I'll encourage you towards seeing socialization as a non-competitive sport. I believe we're all somewhere on a continuum. 
socialise as war, to socialise as non-competitive sport. It isn't either or. In business transactions, competitions, law, politics, international diplomacy and negotiating with terrorists, it's often like war, win or lose. In other situations, particularly with family and friends, but also in health and helping professions or in creative endeavours, it's more like artwork or non-competitive sport. In many situations, it can be both. Negotiating a difficult sibling, a business associate or a thorny colleague. Ask yourself, how much of this is win-lose and how much of this is us working and being together? Oh, this is such an important question to ask. As a competitive person myself, it's always good for me to recognize that I sometimes approach relationships as if I need to win, and that can really compromise the relationship. So does examining yourself and knowing this about yourself help temper it, do you think? Always, always. You keep it in the forefront of your mind that, hey, we're just doing something together to build something together. And that will just stop that competitive attitude that we all have from rearing its head too much. With trust, we naturally move from win-lose socialising to mutual artwork or non-competitive sport. During the coronavirus crisis, for example, many people are valuing the people around them more and more. For them, socialising is becoming less about networking and win-lose and more about enjoying people non-competitively. People who approach socialising like war are out to win, impress, climb the social hierarchy, improve their own lot in life and make themselves feel good at the expense of others. They often want to see the results of their socialising show up in their bank account or in the number of likes they receive online. They're happy when things go well for them regardless of how things go for others. They may attack others' opinions, beliefs or lifestyle, become defensive when attacked and when you meet someone like this you may need to withdraw or stonewall their attempts to manipulate or coerce you into accepting their agenda. But not all conversational sparring is destructive. Academics often spar for sport to sharpen each other's minds and to get a richer understanding of a topic. They push each other's brains in the same way two tennis players push each other's skills. At the end of the sparring, there can be a sense of wishing each other well, like the sporting handshake after a tennis match. Healthy competition helps excellence. The feelings underneath can be, thanks, I wish you well, and I know you wish me well, but I'm still glad I won. People who approach socialising as a non-competitive sport socialise for fun and sharing. They wish for the goodness and happiness for all concerned. That's their primary aim. They attack and defend less, and often use disarming tactics, letting others' attacks wash off them as though they didn't matter. Disarming comments may include, Hmm, I have to give that some thought. Maybe you're right. I'm not sure about that. That's disappointing, but I can't change how you feel about me. Thank you for your opinion. Well, we'll have to agree to disagree. They are not doormats, but they don't argue for the sake of arguing or to maintain self-assurance. Theirs is more of a live and let live attitude. In negotiating people of diversities, as individuals, we can do with less war and more non-competitive sport. Less attack, defend, manipulate, coerce, stonewall and withdraw. More social brain engagement, vulnerability, sharing and disarming. As you can tell, I'm not a fan of putting people into categories. I encourage you to treat all people as human beings rather than come at them with too many presupposed ideas. There is, however, a way of looking at the personality of diverse groups the same way as the personality of people by using the five-factor model and, for some, this can be very helpful. Otherwise, let's go into the five steps. Each step will have a familiar format. 
a question and a choice to get you thinking, a discussion on principles of the step, and practical tips to help apply the step. Let's go. Step one, accept and applaud difference. So what if others do things differently? I can choose to accept that. Accepting other people just as they are is difficult. It means not wanting to change anything about them. Can we actually aspire to that? Yes, as an ideal. Accepting is looking at who they are and thinking, yep, we're different and it's okay. Accepting does not mean changing yourself, though you may change your choice of words and your behaviours to help your interaction. You may meet someone you normally wouldn't like. Accepting is seeing things you may normally react against in them, shelving those reactions, and choosing to become curious instead. Curiosity is the key to moving down the mere exposure effect pathway towards acceptance. Aim not to deny your negative emotions, but to keep them to yourself. Yep, those feelings are a part of me, but this person doesn't need to know about them. Later, if your meeting develops into a friendship, you may say, oh, when I first got to know you, I found things difficult, but I'm sure glad I got to know you more. This honesty can deepen a friendship. Accepting acknowledges that this person may become a friend or someone you may never see again. Okay, but what about the feelings underneath? Don't you think that they would sense those if you just sort of shelve it? In a sense, they would, but we're both a bit on guard when you're in a new interaction and we're sensitive to these things, but we're looking for the good choices that people make in their words. Okay. Applauding difference goes one step further. I accept you too. I'm happy for you to be who you are. Just as you can applaud performers on stage and not feel that you have to be like them or think like them, so too you can applaud another person just for being themselves without thinking you need to be like them or think like them. What does applause say? It says, good for you, well done, that's great. Nowhere does it say you agree with how someone lives, what they say. Applause is a live and let live appreciation thing. It says, it's all right for you to be you, but I'll go on being me. It's honest in its praise. You may not agree with someone's views, but you can always find something to applaud. Everyone craves recognition, even applause, for who they are or the things that they put effort into. Practical tips to help accept and applaud difference. When first meeting someone, our brain has a tendency to react emotionally and negatively. The brain wants to feel sure of itself, so it likes to assert itself if challenged. Using self-talk in your head to calm down your emotions while you're interacting works. Calm down, Ella. This is just a person you're getting to know. Give them a chance and give yourself a chance. You may grow to like them. Cultivate curiosity. To help accept, cultivate curiosity. Cultivating curiosity speeds up the mere exposure effect pathway to acceptance. Exposure to initial hostility to curiosity to final acceptance. Begin questions with the words, I'm just curious. I'm curious. What do you usually do to relax? Your curiosity will pique the other person's curiosity. I wonder why she's curious about me. But try not to be threatening with this. Too many questions can make you appear intrusive rather than safe. Find a balance. Curiosity is very helpful whenever dealing with a new situation. You can have many thoughts of curiosity going through your mind. I wonder where this conversation's going. I wonder how they feel about dot, dot, dot. I wonder what I'll say next. I wonder what I need to accept about this person. 
I wonder if I feel threatened by this person in any way. I wonder what I can applaud in this person's life. I wonder what I can like about this person. Some of these questions may come in and out of your conversation. Others won't. It's the attitude of curiosity that's helpful, not the barrage of questions. Being curious makes the other person the focus of your attention. It leads to them feeling valued, worthwhile, and if you don't bombard them with questions, safe and at ease. Helpful words and phrases. To accept someone, it helps to use accepting words and phrases. Negative words. No, no way. I can't believe that. You're going to be joking. And a sarcastic, caustic or critical tone hinders accepting and applauding difference. Positive words. Yeah, sure. I see what you mean. Okay, that's good. Helps to accept and applaud difference. Aim to lace your conversations with positive words. To accept and applaud someone, use helpful phrases. Yeah, I can accept that. Good on you for being yourself. Well, that may not be for me, but I see it works for you. Congratulations, that must have taken some effort. Well done. I statements. Everyone is entitled to their own opinions, but not to their own facts. You're allowed to hold any opinion, but it helps others feel accepted if you speak them out with, I think that, or I feel that, dot, dot, dot. This shows that you own the statement as a personal opinion rather than giving the impression that what you say is objective truth. I think it'd be good if we could all accept each other. I think it'll snow tomorrow. I feel there's something missing in the way we live. I support the left. That's just me. Mm, my stance is pretty much centre-left. I statements allow others to agree, disagree, challenge or support with me too or I don't feel that way. Here's what I think. If you can encourage the other person to think or say, me too, this helps to reach acceptance. If you honestly can, say, me too, whenever you can. Saying, I don't quite feel that way, rather than, no, I disagree, is a gentler way of disagreeing. This can lead to further discussion. Like them. Early on in your interaction, find something about the other person you can genuinely like. The tone of their voice, an earring, their hairstyle, friendliness in their eyes, a reserved demeanour, bold assertiveness, a good sense of humour, whatever. Find something you genuinely like. Don't fake it. Focus on this one thing in your mind to send accept signals through your eyes and social brain. Giving someone the feeling that you genuinely like them helps in all people interactions. And I suppose this helps the feelings underneath too because you're actually thinking of something good towards them, yeah? I would say so. Listen. Just take in what they're saying without the need to blurt out all about yourself. You'll soon get your chance. Listen without judgment. The brain has a natural tendency to say or think, I agree with that, I disagree there, I'm not sure about that, and so forth, in an attempt to feel sure of itself. Tell your judgment just to chill a while and just listen with curiosity to the person to accept them. For the practical tips to accept and applaud difference, I've just given you an acronym. Keep CHILL, C-H-I-L-L, whenever negotiating diversity. C, cultivate curiosity. H, have helpful words and phrases. I, I statements made for respectful conversation. L, like something about them. And L, listen. We return to CHILL in each of the coming steps. Okay, that's it for today. Time to say goodbye and chill. Don't forget the chill acronym. We'll come back to that. 
Did you enjoy today's episode? Share it with a friend, pop up a heart, or have a look at all our other content on our website. Really looking forward to your company next time.